Welcome to Monarch Perspectives. I'm Steve LeClaire, partner at Monarch Private Capital, focused on affordable housing. And I'm Rick Chukas, also a partner at Monarch, leading our historic division. In this podcast series, we'll talk with industry experts about important topics for tax equity investors, developers, and owners. From affordable housing to renewable energy, we'll explore trends and opportunities in federal and state tax credit programs. We hope to provide you with valuable insights to navigate the world of tax equity and impact investing. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Monarch Perspectives. I'm Rick Chukas and I'm joined by my co-host Steve LeClaire. Today we'd like to delve into what's going on in the historic tax credit space. Historic tax credit transactions are encountering headwinds in terms of sourcing debt and getting the capital stack put together. As I suspect, Steve, you may be seeing this in low-income housing transactions as well. Absolutely, Rick. Uh, Good to be with you today. As you mentioned, there have been a number of challenges in putting deals together, interest rates chief among them that impact primarily the debt financing on these transactions and how we're able to make ends meet and put all the the pieces together necessary to make the transactions work. And these clearly have spillover effects in LIHTC, and I'm sure they impact many aspects of historic transactions as well. Exactly. And to gain a deeper insight into what's going on, we're honored to have Philip Welker as our guest. Philip is Managing Director of BNA Associates headquartered in Nashville. Philip and his firm have firsthand experience in working with the historic tax credit and have undertaken a number of rehab projects, including the very successful Claremont Hotel in Atlanta. A warm thank you for being here, Philip. Thank you, Rick. Steve, happy to be here. Let's dive in. Philip, at the moment, what are some of the challenges in getting any real estate transaction closed? I can speak more specifically about hotels because that's what we've been more involved in. And we've got a historic hotel transaction up in Knoxville right now. We're trying to close. It's, you know, really just debt equity, raising all the capital. I think, you know, equity right now, you know, what we're hearing seems to be, you know, either sitting on the sidelines, waiting for more distress or trying to really evaluate what equity like returns should be in this market, given there's a 5% risk-free rate and 11% rate on senior loans. You know, on the debt side, the traditional lenders are being cautious because, you know, they're seeing a lot of capital outflows from banks going into, you know, money market funds and other non-traditional, you know, investment sources that have had kind of lower interest rates for the past 10 years. And also they're starting to get, see a big increase in pressure from regulators. So any kind of kind of construction financing, anything without cash flow in place is, is challenging, especially as you get into the hospitality market, uh, which some see has kind of maybe potentially been overbuilt in some markets. Um, we're definitely seeing the fund debt, you know, pick up. They're actively working to try to fill that void. But given the the lack of interest from, you know, traditional banks, they're seeing such a large volume of interest that uh, we're seeing them even be more selective. So given that uh, the equity and debt markets have been somewhat chilled by the run-up in rates and thereby the, the run-up in expected investor returns, how are transactions made easier by the introduction of the historic credit, or does the introduction of the historic credit complicate matters further? Well, it does a little bit of both. What makes a historic tax credit transaction easier is both when equity and debt sources see that incentive in place, right? So they're looking at the cost basis being brought down. You know, it's it's kind of subsidizing the project to maybe give a competitive advantage against non-historic tax credit projects. 
But, you know, what makes it more difficult is after you pass that initial hurdle, you know, the devil's in the details. And so when you get into the transaction documents and then things get brought up like non-disturbance agreements with lenders, you know, just to protect the tax credit investor and the, and the sponsor, uh, but really even all parties from, you know, a negative effect of a recapture event in the event that a project doesn't work out, you know, before the compliance period's over. The same kind of goes for the equity investors and the fact that they know that they're going to be locked in for a five-year hold period, you know, after a construction period. And with that, you know, comes the uncertainty of what that market might look like in year six when you're out of compliance. A lot of times we go into these projects thinking, hey, the economy's good now, let's build something. And when you're done with the project, you want to go ahead and immediately sell it and try to monetize it, but you, you got to hold to it. You know, a good example is, is when I got started, my first projects were historic tax credit projects, and I built a number of residential conversion condominiums in, in Knoxville and held on to them for five years and rented them. And when it came time to sell, 2007 came around and we entered a lease purchase agreements for both of them. And then when 2008 came around, neither of them ended up closing. 23 years later, I still own those properties. So they would have been great to sell, you know, in 2005, you know, but it just was, you know, I wasn't out of my compliance period yet. So Philip, you mentioned uh, hospitalities clearly in your gun sites currently. Are there specific real estate product types that you think are a better use of the historic tax credit? I mean, I think anything like office or retail or industrial where you can get a lease agreement that extends beyond the HTC period is ideal. I mean, I think investors and everybody likes to see that. But outside that, between market rate residential and hospitality, I think it's a pretty even impact on the economics to an investor. You know, hospitality has a slight disadvantage in the fact that a smaller percentage of the capital stack comes into a hotel because a lot of costs like furnitures, fixtures, equipment, opening inventory, payroll, and then, you know, the third-party fees and interests that are kind of allocated towards those items are ineligible for tax credits. So potentially during the project, if those costs increase, you're not getting the offset increase in credit to help absorb them. You know, on the multifamily side, you definitely see you know, where you get a higher a senior loan debt leverage. You're seeing HTC represent a much larger share of the overall equity stack. And then when costs overrun on, on a hard cost basis, you're, you know, you're kind of riding that with you because you don't have a lot of the ineligible costs you do on the hospitality side. So taking a step back just for a second, I, you know, maybe it would be helpful if you could give a bit more of an overview on how the historic program works kind of generally at a high level and then what it's like working with the consultants, the architect, the state historic preservation offices and the National Park Service that really administer this program and you know, kind of make these deals work from the front end because it, there's a long period between when you put in a part one application and when you start swinging hammers on site. Yeah, right. Correct. Well, so, the, you know, the program, you know, I think in its current iteration dates back to 1986 and, you know, it's a 20% credit against uh, a certain eligible, you know, pretty much your hard project cost. And you can take those credits and either, you know, use them yourself or monetize them as, as most people do. And, you know, that goes into your capital stack. So out of, say, 100% funding in a project, you know, by the time you sell your credits and stuff, you might have 10 or 15%, you know, of that credit, you know, providing your funding. And so in doing those projects, the more prepared you are for what the requirements are and knowing the expectations, the smoother the process is going to be. You know, I always advise developers, you know, getting into it, uh, you know, to go ahead and read and study like the National Park Service Guidelines for Historic Preservation. It's a great document that kind of outlines best practices, things, you know, with illustrations of ways to go about, some, you know, restoring something and ways to not go about it. 
you know, we even take those guidelines and reference them in our contracts we do with designers and contractors, you know, just to make sure they're aware of them. I generally find state, you know, preservation offices, SHPOs as they call them, and the National Park Service to be very helpful and resourceful in getting projects done. You know, everybody has the same goals. They want to see projects preserved. And so, you know, developers, especially, you know, if you can relate to what their requirements are and you know the ropes and you're not proposing things to them that are controversial, it really goes a long way to kind of, you know, build their confidence in you and make the process a lot smoother. You know, and I always advise definitely retaining the expertise of an HTC consultant to go ahead and file your part one, your part two, and your part three. You know, their ability to describe the project and your rehabilitation efforts in words and kind of in, in a method that the SHPO and National Park Service can definitely relate to will help those applications immensely from edits and other kind of revisions. You know, then I always advise that retaining the expertise of an HTC consultant that has experience uh, in that project's jurisdiction and specifically with that state SHPO is, is always a, a leg up and having an HTC consultant, you know, be able to file your part ones, part two and part three. And hiring architects, you know, it's always good to hire architects that have experience in adaptive reuse. I don't think they necessarily have to have historic preservation experience. I think as long as you have the right HTC consultant on board to help guide the architect on how to document the finishes and, and you know, what's qualified rehabilitation expenditures and what's not, uh, that can be a process you can work through and, and be learned. But having the ability to know how to adapt modern codes to old buildings is, is probably the most critical skill in working with an architecture on a preservation project. Philip, as you know, when we're talking to institutional investors, we're talking about impact investing, which obviously includes jobs creation, sustainability, etc. And there's been a fair amount of discussion about how the historic credit really helps communities create jobs and promote sustainability. Um, interested in your thoughts about that, what you've seen and what you've what you've witnessed on the particular rehab projects you've undertaken. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, for job creation specifically, you know, it's more than just during the development period and for a specific project. I mean, generally you see entire communities benefit from having their, their entire historic fabric woven in with both the new development you know, it creates more visitation from tourists. We see increased patronage from the local community. We see expanded tax bases in areas that, you know, maybe it hits some distressed. I started my career and cut my teeth in downtown Knoxville. And, you know, in the, in the 1990s, for the most part, it was a ghost town in downtown. And slowly buildings were converted into, you know, residential loft communities, retail followed it, you know, hotels. Now you have you know, a lot of live entertainment. It's a destination for restaurants. You know, downtown Knoxville has just completely reemerged as an amazing tax base and community center uh, for the citizens of Knoxville. Regarding sustainability, uh, you know, the important part of the HTC process is, is that, you know, it reuses building stock and it doesn't create as much landfill. I think that's the biggest sustainability benefit from the historic preservation process. You know, it just always kills me how much waste is created, you know, specifically by like these sports stadiums when they're built and used for only 20 or 30 years and then they're torn down for like a new stadium. You know, that's a lot of material that goes back into, a, you know, a landfill and stuff. And, you know, it's expensive to and difficult to take an existing property 
pay what the current property owner wants only to have the building on that piece of land be not be able to be reused. Philip, circling back to the challenges in raising equity for for projects, you mentioned in your overview of the program that you know a developer can either take the historic credits themselves or they can bring in a, a third party historic tax credit equity investor. Can you speak to the challenges of bringing in a third party historic equity investor versus how that might be similar or different from sourcing traditional sponsor equity or private equity on a, on a more conventional asset? You know, anytime you have more parties involved, there's more complication. You know, my experience is in bringing in a third party tax credit investor, it's a much more structured investment than sponsor equity. You know, a lot of times it's kind of working with a lender and the fact that the way you structure a deal, they fund the deal and on the documentation side, whereas on the sponsor equity side, it's always a lot looser because the investment always has the promise of like unlimited upside to where the tax credit equity side's a lot more structured in this is how much money that we're investing. This is kind of our payout. And we we're kind of contractually feel like we're going to get an, an exit, you know, at a certain period in time at a certain strike price. You know, I think it all really comes down to the quality of the third party equity investor and their willingness to take risks with you and work through issues. I mean, no pro- project is perfect, but groups that uh, like you all that have had a lot of experience with these things, you know the ropes and you do them, and it obviously makes the process a lot smoother than trying to transact with a group that might be, you know, even, you know, a, a degree or two further away from the actual source of the HTC money. Rick, that might be your first ever client testimonial. Wow. You've done, I know, both traditional debt and what we consider fund debt. And I think clearly uh, in today's environment, we're seeing much more fun debt come into projects. Other than getting your hands on on the cash and finding willing borrowers, you know, what are the challenges today of each in your experience? Well, traditional debt, it's, you know, the bank debt's definitely the stricter availability. You know, just their lack of ability at this point to really take on new construction projects. But then for the projects and the developers, there's always this the recourse risk, right? So there's just the trade-off between interest rate and risk. As you, as you, you know, alluded to, the fund debt is definitely a lot more available today uh, at a much higher cost, obviously. You know, my experience with fund debt is you can almost get them to do anything as long as you pay them for it. Traditional banks, not so much. You know, you can, we've tried offering some balance sheet lenders like, well, what if we paid you a little bit higher rate or we did it this way? And it's like, you know, it's no, our credit committee and our box is this. And, and again, a lot of that has to do with, you know, the regulatory process, you know, over traditional banks versus not, you know, being in the, in the fund debt world. So given the costs of debt capital, you know, be it the, you know, the regulatory restrictions impacting banks and their ability or willingness to lend and then debt funds scooping in to fill that gap, but at a much higher price, equity returns being higher than we've seen required in other years, just given the run-up in the risk-free rate. What are you seeing in terms of how deals are being put together right now and what capital stack of a deal you're going to do two years from now is going to look like? Uh, you know, Is it going to require some additional sources, some you know, gap funds from states or cities to, to fill in those holes, or do you think you'll be able to still balance out a deal with debt and equity just from different sources? You could still balance out a project with debt and equity from traditional sources. Um, I don't know at this point that I see a real increase in like state and government incentives 
playing much of a, of a role, um, at least in the kind of projects that we're doing. I mean, you've, we've always had those there, right? So like our Knoxville projects got a pilot in place and we got the historic tax credits. Our, you know, Clarksville development project has a tax increment package in place. And those are tools that have kind of always been around. I don't see new things being invented or used by municipalities to kind of help deals along, at least not yet. You know, I think you're starting to see a lot of interest in the preferred equity space. Um, and again, I think that comes back to equity investors trying to find like what's the right compensation for project equity at this point. They're having difficulty believing that they should go in on an equity basis and get anything in the high 20s. They still want returns that are in the low to mid teens, but they feel like they can, you know, because debt is 11%, they want to come in and play a preferred equity role, um, you know, in that 13 to 17 to 19% range. You see new products like Pace coming into the market that add a new layer of complication to things, but I don't think more complication is something that the market wants. I think the market creates vehicles to work around certain structural requirements like Pace that eventually you know, will improve and simplify in the future. I have always said historic rehab is not for the faint of heart. As you know, Philip, probably better than anybody else uh, oftentimes you don't know what you're getting into until you're in there peeling the layers of the onion skin back and it, clearly there is no how-to handbook on historic rehab i think experience is a great teacher so in that vein any particular lessons that you've learned from the rehab deals that you've done when doing historic tax credit projects and you're doing your market analysis, I think you need to make sure to price in the demolition and other stabilization costs in with the land when evaluating like a historic tax credit project versus a project that does not have historic tax credits if you're doing a ground up hotel or a ground up building. The other one is really be proactive in submitting National Park Service amendments throughout the project rather than waiting to the end after the work's been completed. I think the more frequently you can keep them updated even on a monthly basis. The more informed they feel throughout the process and the more helpful they can be in addressing the challenges that you happen to uncover that are unknown during a rehab project. The other lesson I've learned in rehabilitation projects over the years is it's always better in the long term to go ahead and take advantage of the historic tax credits on eligible hard costs on the front end by going ahead and you know replacing major building systems, replacing roofs that might be halfway through end of life rather than, well, I can save a little bit of money today by putting off this improvement for another six, eight, 10 years. Go ahead and create a brand new building today and, and take the tax credits against it versus you know potentially entering up with some deferred maintenance later. So, Philip, given the the focus on hospitality that seems to have been the trend for BNA in recent years, you know, what does the future hold? Do you expect you know hospitality continue to be the focus or an expansion into you know other types of redevelopment? Yeah, and no, I think hospitality continue to be the main focus. I mean, we've built up a management company uh, and we've got just an incredible team around us that you know knows how to manage those assets, and so we're going to continue to kind of expand into markets that look a lot like the markets we're already in, which are kind of, you know, secondary and tertiary markets that um, have a demand for, you know, certain design lifestyle hotels, but don't have those hotels yet. Uh, but then we're also kind of going back to the markets they're already in and looking to do secondary projects. Knoxville is a good example. We're doing our second hotel in Knoxville. I'd love to come back and do another hotel in Atlanta if we could ever find the, the right project to fit that. But, you know, generally, you know, if it's not hospitality, 
we look to invest in projects that have both, you know, a social and economic impact on their communities. One being uh, a Riverview Square project in Clarksville, Tennessee, we're doing right now. None of it is historic tax credits. We're actually taking a 1980s, uh, 156 room hotel and converting it into a Hilton Doubletree. The county's building a public parking garage on uh, 1.4 acres that we donated to them for that purpose. And what that did is that freed up uh, over 130 surface parking spaces in front of our hotel that we're going to turn into 50,000 square feet of entertainment retail. And this is all about getting kind of a critical mass together to help build out and you know encourage downtown development uh, in Clarksville. We want to do historic preservation projects. I think, you know, to us, they're just a lot, you know, more rewarding. And that's why I've taken on the Andrew Johnson project in Knoxville. You know, it's an important structure for that community. And so I think that's always got a special place, you know, in our portfolio. Well, Philip, appreciate very much your insights into the world of historic rehab and redevelopment. Uh, very, very insightful. And congrats on the continued success of BNA Associates. Steve, as always, you're a heck of a co-host and uh, thank you all. Rick, Steve, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure, Philip. Thanks for the partnership. Rick, uh, always happy to ride your coattails and follow your lead on these podcasts. <laughs> That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Monarch Perspectives. We hope you will follow and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Monarch Private Capital, please visit monarchprivate.com.